Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We started this um, book of Genesis, and if you remember, I told you that the, the book of Genesis just means the book of beginnings. And really, that's why we want to look at this book, and we're going to especially look at the first three chapters over the next few months. Because it really lays the foundation uh, in every sense of the word uh, to our biblical understanding of uh, who God is, uh, how this world came about, uh, who we are and how we are to relate to God and how we are to be in this world. And even as we get into Genesis 3 uh, as to what went wrong, And really, it's not just the account of creation and the fall in a historical sense that we will see, because even when God lays out things in Scripture, it's not just a historical record, but even through that, uh, theology is also being built. And, And so even right in the first few pages of Scripture, as God records this history, there's a lot of theological foundations that God sets up that kind of then overflow into the pages of uh, scripture that is revealed through the history of God's revelation and that we need to keep in mind too. And in fact, what you will see is also there's, there's a close connection between uh, this creation here and a close connection to what will happen right in the end in Revelation with the new creation, when the new heavens and the new earth are formed. And even on an individual level, we as Christians, as we are God's new creation in Christ, how there's things that he does in creation that is the same thing that he does for us as new creations as well. And so we'll see all of that as we go through this Wonderful book. So this morning we're going to look at uh, Genesis 1, 3 to 5. And just by way of reminder from verses 1 to 2, what we looked at is right at the very beginning. At the very beginning of time and space and matter, there was God. God, the Elohim, the, the creator God. The, the God of gods, that there was no one other than God. It, it wasn't that there was God and there was some evil force or God and Satan or any, there, there was God and some other gods. None of that. There was only God in existence. This God who exists from eternity past to eternity future. And this God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw that even that word create is a very unique word that's used in the Bible only of God. It's never used of man. God can, uh, there's another word which is make, uh, which man can make things, uh, but it's also used of God where God can make things. But the word to create is used in the Bible only of God. And it signifies that it's uh, that he only can create very new things. You know, things that did not exist before. It's a unique act of God. And we saw how that even parallels with 
you know, with new creation, even us as children, uh, where even David talks about creating me a new heart, or that we are new creations in Christ, that this is solely an act of God. This is not something that human beings can bring about. And we saw that God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse two goes on to explain the state that this earth was in. That it was without uh, form and void. So when it first says there that God created the heavens and the earth, it was formed, you know, kind of like in its rudimentary stage, with just its raw materials. So you had, there was no matter right at start, there was only God, so you can think of, it's just vacuum, no molecules, no atoms, no nothing. Even matter does not exist, only God exists, and then God creates, and he creates matter. And, and you have this... Um, rudimentary earth, and he also creates space now. It's no longer a vacuum, but there is space, and there's this rudimentary big ball of um, waters. And we also saw that, you know, it says there that earth, the earth was without form and void, and what we understand from that is as we progress in the days of Scripture, we understand what that really means. Without form, meaning formless. And as creation progresses, in the first three days, God creates form. He creates an environment that now becomes suitable for life. And then he fills that void with life, with creatures, with, uh, with everything that is seen. And, and there's a parallel there between Uh, Days one, two, three, and corresponding to that, he fills what he's created, the form that he's created in day one, two, and three, with days, things that he makes in days five and days six and, uh, and day four, four, five, and six. And so now we continue on in day one, and we're going to look at how God creates light. And by way of outline, uh, I've, my first point is just the means of creation. Rather than saying the, the means of God creating light, I've just left it at means of creation because it has implications for even the way he made the rest of creation as well. So let's just look at this first, the, the first point. And God said. And God said. That's the means of God's creation, which is God's word. God's word goes out and it brings into existence things that did not exist before. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God is creating the entire universe with just his word. I mean, there's no difficulty here whatsoever for God. He's not breaking a sweat trying to somehow create this universe. I mean, you and I know that, you know, even just dealing with children. I mean, how much difficulty we have dealing with our children, just trying to control them with our word. But God merely speaks, and it's done. Even if there is nothing... That nothingness now obeys God's word and it does 
his bidding. When God speaks, his word is fulfilled. You know, and this shows the fundamental difference between God and his creature man or anything else that he has made. God's word is not empty like human words. God's word is powerful and living, enable to, enable, that, that is able to create and bring to effect what he has spoken. Now this phrase, and God said, it's repeated for all six days of creation. And you have to ask the question, why? I mean, why is it repeated? Why does God keep repeating himself, you know? And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. I mean, God could have created everything without speaking. He's God. And, and there's no one there at the very start of things. There's no Adam and Eve. There's not even animals. Nothing is there. Then why does God create everything with his word? And why does he want us to understand that he created everything with his word? Because by repeating himself and saying that God created everything by what he said, he's placing the emphasis on the means by which he created everything. Namely, his word. You see, God wants to establish right at the start the importance of his word. Right at the start of creation, we are introduced to a theology of God's word. And what we can understand from the first few verses of Genesis about God's word is that God's word reveals God's will and it will always bring to fruition whatever God has purposed by his word. We know what is in the mind of God through his word. Because when his word comes out, we, we say, oh, that's what is in the mind of God. So it reveals the very mind of God. And that very same word brings then into existence or brings to fulfillment all that he has expressed in his word. There's never a doubt whether God's word is going to bring to effect what he has willed, what he has expressed in his word. And it's showing that there is nothing quite as powerful as God's word. And that's exactly what we see right at the beginning of creation. That it is through God's word he created everything. And as we read other parts of scripture, it keeps reaffirming that. Psalm uh, 33.6 reaffirms this truth by saying, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11 describes the power of God's word this way. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth 
and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And what we understand is that this same powerful word of God that created the universe is the same word that governs the life of his people and even direct the affairs of human history as we then go on in the pages of scripture. In fact, as we continue to read about the word of God in the Old Testament, it is often personified, especially in the prophets. You hear the refrain, and the word of the Lord came to this prophet. And the word of the Lord came to that prophet. And the word of the Lord came to that prophet. Or even in the Psalms, where again it's personified as, as Psalm 107.20 says, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. It's as though the word of God is, is walking and moving where it came and it is sent out and it heals and it delivers people. And by the time you get to the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, it explains that the Word of God is not some impersonal force, it is the very person of God, which is what we read earlier in our Bible reading. Just turn with me to that, John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. At the very beginning, the same beginning as Genesis 1.1, the Word was there. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word wasn't created, but the Word itself is God. And as we read on in John 1, we understand that this Word is none other than Jesus Christ. Or in other words, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's just a way of saying uh, Jesus Christ, before he took on flesh, before he became the God-man, the pre-incarnate God was the word that was going out at creation and doing the work of creation. Colossians 1.16 confirms this reality as well. For by him, talking about Christ again, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The pre-incarnate Christ, although he is also God, he is the very agent, the very means by which God the Father 
created the entire universe. Now, if you come back to Genesis 1, what you'll see is all three persons of the Trinity at work. You have God the Father who speaks. You have God the Holy Spirit hovering and moving things around and preparing the world with all its raw materials to receive the word of God. And we saw that last week in Genesis 1-2. And then now we understand as we read verse 3 and as we read John 1 as well, you have God the Son carrying out what God the Father has decreed. So whenever we hear the term, and God said, in Genesis 1, we need to understand that the pre-incarnate Christ then went forth accomplishing the will of God in creating the universe. So that's the, the means of creation. God's powerful and effective word. Now let's look at the fact of creation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He simply speaks, and that which he has spoken has become a reality. God says, let light be, and light was. Now remember, there was no sun, no moon, no stars created as yet. That happens on the fourth day. And here on day one, God creates light. Now we all understand to some extent that the sun is not the only source of light. You know, if there's fire, we'll say, yeah, well, there's light there produced from fire. If there's, if there's lightning, there's, there's light produced from that. So we know that the sun is not the only source of light, but you might be thinking, yes, Benoit, but we're talking about light for the whole earth. You know, where do we get that kind of light if we don't have the sun and the moon and the stars? Well, turn to Revelation 21. When we get to the end of this world and we have the new heavens and the new earth, look at what it says about the new city of Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 22, 5 again says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So if God can do without the sun and the moon to produce the light in the new heavens and the new earth, then surely he can do the same at the start of creation. It's not that difficult for God. I mean, he's the God who makes anything come to be when there was nothing. Now, what we can. Now, I, I don't think in Genesis 1 3 the light is God Himself or His glory, because this light is what God has created, where He says, Let there be, and there was light. 
But what we can be sure about is that this God who wraps himself in light, as Psalm 104.2 says, or the, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, as 1 Timothy 6.16 says, this God, he commanded the light to come into existence when there was only darkness everywhere and the light actually came to be. Now, during the time of Moses, when he's writing this book of Genesis, the ancient culture around believed in the sun, uh, it being such a predominant celestial body in the sky, uh, the sun that brings light and life. Uh, you know, the culture around thought, therefore, the sun is God. And so there was a lot of the worship of the sun god. But what Genesis 1-3 refutes as, is that the Son is not God. The one true creator God is. So the light, it doesn't depend on the Son, but light and everything else depends on God, who alone was present at the beginning. Now speaking about the light, we can assume that, as some commentators have suggested, that if there was visible light, the entire electromagnetic spectrum was also created. So that would include things like the ultraviolet, and the infrared, and the gamma rays, and the x-rays, and, and so on and so forth, that we cannot see the whole entire spectrum, all of the electromagnetic waves. And what that means is, this is also the time that God created color. Red, yellow, blue, green, orange, all of the colors, every shade of it, every combination of it. You know, just the other day I was bringing Caleb back from school and we were noticing the autumn colored leaves that were showing up on some of the trees. And it's not just the colors of the trees and the flowers, but, but the beautiful colors of the, of the sky and the, and the beautiful ocean, the, the colors of the animals, you know, the, the various birds with all its uh, frilly colors, uh, the, the little insects with those, uh, you know, dazzling colors, the, the, the land creatures, the fish, the, the, the vibrancy of the color that is seen in the entire animal kingdom. Then you have beautiful colors of, of artists as, as they paint beautiful pictures. The colors of perhaps places that you like to go and visit. Colors of food that you eat. Colors of the, the, the clothes that you wear. Even the, the different skin tones and the colors that are present even amongst us who come from different ethnicities. There's color literally everywhere as we look around in this world. And it's because God created those colors. You know, God didn't have to create those colors. He didn't have to create a world like that. He could have just made a world without color. You know, everything just black and white. 
what a different world it would have been. But God chose to create the world with color. And the reason God made the world with all its colors and its shades is because it points to God's own brilliance. Just like when we see the vibrant colors and the artistry of an artist and we say, wow, who is this artist? When we see all the colors around, that points to the creator who made these colors. The colors point to God's own beauty and creativity. So that when we look at this world with all its colors, colors that are brought about because the light is bouncing off the surface of various objects, we can look at these colors and say, what a great creator who brings so much beauty and color into this world. And it's not just color that we get from light, we get energy as well from light. You know, the energy from light that is needed for the life of plants and animals and man himself. You know, for example, the whole process of photosynthesis that, that the plants require and, and how it processes things as a result of that. And then it gives out just enough oxygen to maintain the a- atmospheric oxygen that we need to breathe. So what God is doing here is this. He's kind of turned on the light in the world, so to speak, instead of having the world in darkness. He's brought about color. He's brought about energy through the creation of light. And essentially, it is his very first step to preparing the earth to make it viable for life to fill up the void as he forms the earth. So that's the fact of creation. Now we'll look at the evaluation and the separation of creation in verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, when it says that God saw that the light was good, it's not saying that, oh, you know, it was all dark and God couldn't see. And now that the lights come on, oh, he can see and he sees, oh, you know, this light, that's a really good thing. No, God doesn't need the light or anything else for that matter. Remember, God has existed even before there was light or anything. Psalm 139.12 says, Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is at light with you. So for God, darkness and, and light, they're alike. He's not affected by darkness. He's not groping around in the dark trying to find things and trying to create things if there's only darkness. So then what does it mean then that God saw that the light was good? The word saw, it has more the idea of perceiving rather than just visually seeing something. So in God's, it's another, I guess another way of saying it is it's somebody's evaluation or perception of things. So in God's evaluation of light that he has just created, he saw that it was good. 
that the light that he created was perfectly according to his will. And it reflected the very goodness of God. And it also meant that because it was good like this, it was also going to be conducive for life as he was preparing the world. And again, this phrase, God saw that it was good, is repeated again and again and again in the days of creation. God saw that it was good. 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 Why is he repeating himself? Because he's emphasizing that point. And we can learn two things from this. First of all, God is saying that the creation that he made is good and perfect. Creation is not inherently corrupt. This world that he has made is not inherently bad. That corruption came later, as we will see in Genesis 3. But God's creation, when he created it at first, was good, reflecting the very goodness of God. That's the first thing that we understand when we see God repeating, God saw that it was good. But there's also another thing that we can understand, and that's this. God here is declaring something good according to his own standard. See, the standard is not something outside of God. He himself, he's not consulting anything else, he's not using any other reference. He himself is looking at things and saying, and God saw in his evaluation, in his judgment, this is good. See, God is ultimate. He's the supreme creator who is himself good. And so what that means is that God alone determines what is good and what is not. Do you understand that? Because God alone is supreme and he himself is the very definition of goodness. He himself determines and evaluates and makes a judgment and, and says, this is good and this is not. You see, you and I, we don't get to determine what is good and evil. And yet the world we live in doesn't like to hear that. You know, people will say, especially in this day and age, oh, good and evil, it's all a matter of perspective. You know, if I think this is good, then it's good. But you think it's wrong or evil, then I guess that's also true. But that's, that's for you, and that's fine too. But man cannot do that. Why? Because man is not the ultimate standard of what is good. God is. What we're reminded from the first pages, from the very first page of Scripture, is that it is God's evaluation and judgment that matters. And if God says something is good, it is actually objectively good. God alone establishes what is good and right. He alone gets to define what is good and what is evil. 
and by defining what is, what is good to us, what we need to understand is that this good is actually good for us as well as his children, as his creation. It's not like, you know, when someone says, oh, here, you know, try this out, this will be good for you, and then it turns out that it wasn't actually good for you. No, when God says something is good, it is also for our benefit. As God's children, we should always keep this in mind, that we define good and evil according to God's standard, and that which God defines as good is actually good for us. And we should never forget that. And you know, even from this evaluation by God, God is declaring to us that he alone is God. He alone is God who determines what is right and wrong. He's saying there's no one like me. Nobody sets up the standards like that. And what I have created and declared is truly good. Now verse 4 continues on to say, and God separated the light from the darkness. Remember, it was dark all around. And it, it was never God's intention for the world to remain in darkness all the time. But neither was it was it God's intention for everything to be in the light when he created the light? You know, just light come and darkness disappears completely. That was not his in intention either. God wanted both light and darkness to coexist. And so what does God do? He separates the two, or in other words, he distinguishes uh, the two from each other, giving it certain boundaries designating each of them its own domain. Here's darkness and here's light. Here's your boundary light, here's your boundary darkness. So to separate here, it's the idea of making light and darkness distinct from each other, giving it boundaries. Let me say that again, because this, this has implications as well for things that he, God develops as theology progresses. To separate here is the idea of making light and darkness distinct from each other and giving it boundaries. And this separation that God brings about, it never leads to disorder. It only leads to order, which will bring benefit to his creation and ultimately bring glory to God. And guess what? This idea of separation is repeated again on the second day and the third day. And if you're thinking, oh, God is trying to emphasize that. Yes, you're right. But now you ask, well, why is he emphasizing that he separated her and this is what he did? Because here, 
God is building a theology of separation. It's the same idea then that gets reflected in the life of Israel. When God separates out his people as his own. And then commands them to live in that distinct way from the rest of the world. To separate from that which is profane. That the holy, that which is holy would be separated from that which is profane. And God does the same work of separation in the New Testament with the church. Where he calls out the church to be his own. And then he commands us to be holy, to be separate, to be distinct from the rest of the world and live within his boundaries. Why? For our benefit and for his glory. Living distinctly this way brings order to our lives as opposed to the lives of chaos that is marked by those who do not follow God's laws and boundaries. Now sin, sin can also cause separation. And you see some of that in Genesis 3. There's separation between God and man and separation between man and man. But unlike God's separation, this separation that's caused by sin, it only brings chaos. But when God separates, he brings order. That's the God of creation. See, on the very first day of creation, we are reminded that God is the one who determines what is good and right. And if he brings about a separation in creation, it is for the good of his creation, and it will ultimately point back to his own greatness. And God has done the same work of separation in us, spiritually speaking. Making us distinct from the rest of the world as his new creation. Giving us boundaries and rules to live by from the rest of the world, which is for our good and ultimately points to his greatness. And we will do well to remember that this work that is seen, this idea of separation where God makes things distinct and sets up boundaries for it, is the very foundation by which then he calls us out and to live separate lives. Now we come to the establishment of creation, and that's in verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God names the light and darkness. Now, in our day and age, to, to name something or someone, is, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, it's nothing more than giving a title to something or someone. But in the Bible, naming something or someone is a really big deal. 
Because whatever name you give to someone, that name then is tied to the essence of what that person is. So much so that to be nameless is to be non-existent. So the person's very identity, the, the very essence of that person is tied to that person's name. Now, for example, you know, think of the name Jacob. It, it, you know, it means to, to grab. And we know that when Jacob was born, right out of the womb, he grabs his twin brother Esau at his heel. And when we look at the rest of his life, he's just grabbing things and stealing things, ultimately, where he then clings on to God. Or when we did the book of Habakkuk, do, do any of you remember what Habakkuk, the name meant? Embrace or hug. And what we see in the book of Habakkuk is that despite the, the, the distress that was coming his way and the confusion and where he didn't understand what God was doing, even through that, what does he do? He clings on to God. He embraces God. So the name had big significance. It was tied to the very identity or the essence of the person or that thing. And the only person really who could change uh, someone's name was somebody that was greater than that person. So with God, naming the light and darkness, he is declaring his greatness over them. That he alone is God. And what he's doing is he's defining what the light and the darkness is by naming them. He's giving it meaning and certifying its very nature by saying, uh, the light, I will name it day. The darkness, I will name it night. And that is what it will be and that is how it will exist. He's giving it definition and meaning by naming it. And then the verse goes on to say, and there is evening, and there is morning, the first day. There was evening, and there was morning. You see, when the, the period for, the, the fixed period of darkness that God named as night came to an end, the period that was fixed for the life came about. And this way, uh, you know, God separated the two entities, night and day, giving its boundaries. And what we see is this phrase, and there was morning and there was evening, is repeated again and again at the end of every creation day. And what it shows is that God has now set up this fixed pattern, fixed pattern of day and night. And what this cycle of day and night means is that by this time, the earth is now rotating around its axis. You know, Job 38, 14, it says that God is speaking to Job, and it says, like, clay that is 
turned around under the, the impressions of a seal and it you know, brings about a certain form as it rotates around its axis. And it is changed this way, this lump of clay. So the earth appears in a different form as it rotates around its axis. And when the morning light comes, and you can see the grandeur and the beauty and the form that is there on earth, as opposed to when it's nighttime, as it's rotating this way. So that's what God is doing here. There's a, there's a succession of evening and morning. There's a, there's a cycle that has now been set up. And what is the succession of evening and morning? That's the first day. There was evening and morning the first day. You know, in fact, in the original, it's not even the first day. It should actually be translated one day. See, that makes a huge difference, doesn't it? It's not like first of something, but it's defining what a day is, one day. It's actually not first day, one day. It's very emphatic. God is establishing what is night and what is day. He's just defined that by naming it. And ultimately, now he's saying this is what one day looks like. God is defining and establishing time here. And it's this succession of day and night. And it is precisely because God has established this cycle of day and night, God is now saying, you want a definition of what one day is? Here it is. Day, night, one day. You know, now some people look at this word, and again, somehow to bring about the theories of modern science, whether it's the, the age of the earth or uh, uh, to try and accommodate evolution and so on and forth, so forth. They would say this word day, yom, does not literally mean 24 hours. And they would point to, say, even things like Genesis 2.4. Let's just read that. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so here, obviously, Yom doesn't mean a 24-hour period because we know it was created in a week. But Yom is used like that as well. So, but they put that back and they bring it back into Genesis 1-5 and uh, there are certain other scriptures as well. And they would say that instead of actually being one day, this is not a literal 24-hour period, but it's really millions of years. And then besides, they would point to things like, oh, a thousand day is like a, uh, is like a day in your courts. And so, it, so therefore, this is not literal 24 hours. And therefore, the, all of creation was not made in six literal days. Now, let me just give you a few reasons as to why Genesis 1-5 is talking about a literal 24-hour period that God indeed did create this whole entire universe in a literal 24-hour period. Whenever the term day is used with reference to a number in the Bible, like the fifth day, the sixth day, the second day, whenever a number is used along with this day, 
this word day or yom, it is always, without exception, referring to a 24-hour period. Secondly, turn to Exodus 20.11. This is God establishing the Ten Commandments and talking about the Sabbath. And God is really establishing the work week for the people of Israel. And he's telling them, you need to rest on the seventh day, uh, and, which is called the Sabbath. And this is the reason that he gives. Verse 11, Exodus 20, 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Or in other words, Israel's six-day literal work week is based on the literal six-day creation week. And so because God rested on the seventh day, Israel now, in their work week, is supposed to adopt that and reflect the same on the seventh literal day. I mean, aside from that, just looking at Genesis 1-5, I mean, he's, he's naming, this is day, this is night. This is one day, not first day. This is, uh, pardon me, this is, yeah, this is one day. I mean, it doesn't get more clearer than that. And for those who say, oh, you know, the day refers to a long age or something like that, most would not point to then the night and say, oh, that's also referring to ages. You have to then explain what the night refers to then. But there's also a big theological problem, you know that? When you accommodate for more than six literal days and you know, trying to accommodate evolution and everything else into this over millions of years. And this is what the theological problem is. That there is death before sin. There is death before sin. And yet, what does Romans 5 tell us? It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. So when did death come into the world? When sin came into the world. And when did sin come into the world? It's through the fall of Adam and Eve. When does that happen? In Genesis 3. So if someone is saying there's millions of years and there's these organisms and things are dying and moving on forward... They're essentially saying, no, there was actually death before sin came in Genesis 3. So there's even a theological problem there. So in, so in every sense, what God is doing is he's ordering time. He's establishing time now. He said, I've created light. I've made it distinct. I've given it its boundaries. And I'm defining it for you what it is, day and night. And it's going to follow this pattern. And guess what? When it follows this pattern, when it did it the first time, I'm going to call this one day. And when it's repeated the next day, he says, now that's the second day. When it's repeated the third day, now he says, that's the third day. It's repeated the fourth day, that's the fourth day. It's not that very difficult. It's quite plain. Scripture, you know, if we pay attention to what God is saying and we study it, it's quite plain. So this morning we 
looked at God's creation of light. But even in how he creates, there's so many connections theologically as well about God's word and God's powerful word that it's personified and finally it's portrayed as Jesus Christ himself. That so when God says we, we need to understand that that's when the, the pre-incarnate Christ then went to work in establishing creation and creating all that we see around us. That, that when light was formed, there was energy and color and so on and so forth. And God was reflecting his glory as a result of that and preparing the world to make it viable for life. And then he, he set boundaries and separated and made distinct light and day and he named it even and then he calls it one day. And, there's, and there continues to be parallels to even our life, whether it's living that distinct and separate life according to his boundaries. But before I close, just turn with me to just one more passage, and we'll end here. 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul is saying here? That the creation of light is a pattern, a paradigm for the creation of the Christian. That is to say, God breaking light into darkness was, was a pattern of his saving work that he will do in a spiritual sense. Where he, in the darkness and the void that we were in, that he would then speak light and there would be light. And we would become his new creation. And you know, there continues to be so many parallels, you know, even thinking of, okay, so if there was, you know, why are there six literal days? I mean, God could have done everything in one day. Why is that? Have you ever wondered why? Because it's as we see these details, we begin to see what God is doing, the paradigms and the patterns that he's setting. And he even shows the greatness of God. And isn't that the same thing that he does with us as his new creation? I mean, if God wanted to, he could have just made us perfect like that and taken us to heaven. But it is still a process, isn't it? Why? Because when we go through life as Christian and as we cling to God and depend on him, we begin to see his glory even more. Of his sovereignty, of his wisdom, of his greatness. We begin to experience it more and more as he works in our life and we get to see it step by step. It's the same paradigm. What a great God we serve, isn't it? That's just day one. We've got six more days to get through and we'll do that over the next uh, few weeks. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the great God you are, that you are the God of all creation. You are the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of gods. You are the one true living God. You spoke, you commanded nothingness, and even nothingness obeyed you, and everything was formed. And Father, we, we thank you that it's not just creation, and then when the fall came, it was left like that. But you had a plan. And the same pattern at creation is the same pattern that you do now to spiritually renew us and make us your children, to make us your new creation. Father, we thank you that you have spoken light into our hearts and now we see the light of Jesus Christ. We pray that as you step by step work in our lives, that we wouldn't be disgruntled but we would ever be dependent on you and as we see you working in us and changing in us, that we would ever be more in awe of you, of the great and wonderful God you are, and that we would give you the praise and love you dearly and give you the glory that is due to your name. Father, we pray that all that we've listened to this morning, that you would dig deep in our hearts, and we pray that you would do a work. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.